0: Welcome, again, to services on the Day of Atonement. I hope you're hungry. That's uh, that's what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be hungry today. And there's cause for that. What I'd like to do here at the beginning of the sermon is, is remind us of why we keep the Feast of Atonement. Just go through the basics. I always feel like I can't help myself. I was going to bring the stuffed goats like I did a long time ago. I didn't bring them this year. I should have, you know, but uh, anyway, I, I, wanted, I was going to bring the goats and thought, well, if I do that, I'm going to take even longer to do this. Uh, I want to go through it pretty, pretty quickly. If you'll turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 is one of those great one-stop shopping places when you're really wanting to get started in terms of what are the feasts? What do we do? When are they? In Leviticus chapter 23, then we'll start in verse 26. Leviticus 23 and verse 26 we read, And the eternal spoke to Moses saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. Now afflict your souls means to fast, to go without food or water. Uh, You see that in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 3, and Isaiah 58 and verse 5, where it talks about, relates those two things together. So continuing verse 28, and you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the eternal your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I shall destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work on it. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening. It means beginning that evening. You shall celebrate your Sabbath. Well, the word atonement, I admit I used to get this wrong. I remember hearing Mr. Armstrong say a long time ago that atonement, if you look at the spelling, it literally is at one mint. Then he would talk about that's what atonement means. We'll be at one with God. That that opportunity, will the door will open for us in a special way for the reasons we'll talk about. And I just think, oh, what a great gimmick he put together. You know, at one meant. That works out really well. But I didn't think that's what the word actually meant. I thought that was just him being being witty. He's a good marketer. But it literally does. That is literally the origin of the word atone and atonement. It is a putting together of the words at and one. Atonement in a special way deals with the fact that we will be able to be, not just us, but the entire world will have a new opportunity to be at one with God. It pictures a very important step in God's plan. Atonement fits right after the Feast of Trumpets and before the Feast of Tabernacles. And I remember way back learning these things for the first time. I can tell you even where I was where I was in my life and physically in my life, I was in my living room. Not my living it was my mother's living room. Now that I'm a parent and own the house, I like to emphasize, kids, it's not really your house, right? I and mean, it is, you know, it's mine. Uh, some fellow was telling a joke about how his uh, kids were going around and putting post-it notes on all the stuff they wanted when he died. You know, you know, this or this or that. And he went ahead and put post-it notes all over the house to remind them, mine, 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 still mine, 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 you know, just so you know. But anyway, it was my mother and father's house and I was there. And I was still in high school. I started watching the telecast and such when I was 14. Again, I've mentioned before, but nobody in my family, it was just me. So I was wondering what my mom was thinking of me when I was here reading, oh no, he's into those books again, you know. So, But I had the old booklet from the 50s and 60s, uh, uh, Pagan Holidays or God's Holy Days Witch. And I was laying on our couch right in front of our old Curtis Mathis television on the other side of the living room, uh, laying on the couch and going through it and came across the meaning of the Day of Atonement. And how it fit, prophetically, absolutely perfectly. It was astonishing to me. It was, it, was, it was one of the many things I was experiencing as a 15 and 16 year old that let me know this really is a different church. This is a church that God has shown things in his word that other people simply weren't seeing. So rather than go through those details with the stuffed goats and the rest, I thought I'd turn to Dr. Meredith. We do have a booklet, if you're not aware of it. If you're ever wondering, oh, a holy day's coming up. I wonder if I should study anything in particular. I wonder if there's, if the church has anything at all that I could read related to this holy day. I would encourage you at least, at the very least, with each holy day, go to the holy day's booklet, the holy day's uh, God's, uh, God's uh, no, holy day's God's plan, God's master plan. I could not think of the word master's. I... I work in editorial. Uh, the holy days, God's master plan, and if you will just read the section on that holy day, just read that one section on that holy day, uh, and you'll have gone over the fundamentals for that holy day. It's nice. So I've actually got Doctor Meredith's chapter on atonement, and I just want to read selections so that you do have the connection. Because I, I wasn't going to go into this, but then I recognize we continue to have new people, and. You need to hear it. We all need to hear it. We were remarking the other day about uh, recent sermons. Actually, Mr. Rod McNair's last Sabbath and Mr. Weston's on trumpets. And how they covered the same things we essentially have heard many times. But reminded us of those things in ways that perhaps I hadn't considered before. And we need those reminders all the more because there's many amongst us that haven't heard these things. So I'm just going to read selections from the Holy Day booklet where Dr. Meredith explains the connection between the Day of Atonement, which happens between the Feast of Trumpets, picturing the Day of the Lord, and the Feast of Tabernacles, picturing the Millennium that that will come after Christ's return. So just reading parts of it, he points out, at the beginning of Christ's reign, if there is to be genuine peace and a right spirit among men, Satan the devil must be banished. Notice the commandment regarding the day of atonement in Leviticus 23:27 through 28. And then he reads what we just read together. He goes on, a very clear indication of the real meaning of atonement is given in Leviticus 16. Here we find an Old Testament ritual wherein two goats were to be presented before the high priest. In Israel, casting lots was an appeal to God to decide a matter. So Aaron was to cast lots to find out which of these goats, uh, what, sorry, what each of these goats represented. And it's mentioned verse 8 in Leviticus 16 is where that happens. It says, one goat was to represent the eternal the God of Israel, who later emptied himself and became our Savior. This goat, which they were not able to discern themselves, they needed God to talk to them in that sense through casting of lots to highlight this is the goat that represents Jesus Christ, who is sacrificed for our sins, so that our sins could be forgiven. But then what is the purpose of the other goat? It says, the other goat, he continues, was to represent a zazel, which is a term, as many Hebrew references explain, for the adversary Satan the devil. And there is some confusion here and there out there. And let me just say, if you are confused, we, we definitely do want to help. Uh, Mr. Peter Nathan had an article just a year ago, the September, October 2019 Living Church News titled, A Tale of Two Goats. I don't know that Dickens would be really pleased. But regardless, A Tale of Two Goats. Please read that. Deception on a larger scale always starts with deception on a smaller scale. And so if anyone's confused about that, by all means, please feel free and feel free and ask. And that article by Mr. Nathan is very good. So he continues, Dr. Meredith does, the goat representing the Lord was to die. The goat representing the eternal, that is Jesus Christ, was to die. God told Aaron to offer it as a sin offering in verse 9, just as Jesus Christ gave his life for our sins. But regarding the adversary goat, if you will, God commanded the following. And this is from verses 21 through 22 in Leviticus 16. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And then Dr. Meredith continues, The man who led this goat, symbolizing Satan, into the wilderness was to bathe his body and even his clothing, for symbolically he had come into direct contact with the very embodiment of evil, Satan the devil. He had been used to separate, that is this man, had been used to separate Satan from the people of God. He had led the adversary goat, to a wilderness far away, where he, that is Satan, symbolically could not hurt or deceive God's people anymore. Wrapping up these comments from Dr. Meredith, he highlights the New Testament shows that this is exactly what happens when Christ returns. So, when does the Day of Atonement happen? When did the goat ceremony happen? It happened after trumpets and before the the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. So, this is a symbolic of an event that happens after the Day of the Lord but before the commencement of the kingdom rule on the earth. And so what do we see prophetically happen at that time? We're told, uh, again, he continues, the New Testament shows us exactly what happens when Christ returned. Uh, In Revelation 20, we read that a mighty angel is appointed to remove Satan. A quote from Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3 He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, notice, away from everyone, like a wilderness where there's no inhabited person, there's no one to influence, and set a seal on him so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while." Uh, Wrapping this up, he says, clearly Satan, the Azazel or adversary, will be cut off from humanity. So he is unable to deceive mankind during the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. So we've got booklets, you know, they're worth reading. You know, if you ever want something for the Holy Days, go go to that booklet and read just that one chapter and, and just sort of catch up and refresh yourself. If you will, don't allow the fundamentals to slip away. Satan would love to slip from your grasp the fundamentals because he makes a small vacuum, a small pocket where he can insert something of his own devising that will sound just as good, if perhaps not a little better because the grass is always greener on the other side of the doctrinal hill. Uh, So don't lose the fundamentals. I thought Dr. Meredith covered that so simply and so easily. What I want to focus on today is why is it really necessary? Why must atonement come first? Why must the fast come first? You can think with a certain logic, and I, I, I'll be a, up front. This has entered my head before. I like to think I was younger than I am now, but well, literally every second you're older, so I know it has to be true, that maybe the fast before the feast is because you're going to be eating so much during the feast, you need room, you know, so you're a, you're fasting to make room for all the steaks or... Tofu platters for those of you who, who don't like steaks. But whatever it is, maybe that's it. Well, that's that's not it, you know. And if you're a little kid out there thinking, Oh, I just knew that was why we were doing this. and That's, that's not it. Uh, why do we have to picture... Let me boil it down to this. Is it really necessary for the devil to be removed? I mean, after all, we're struggling with him, right? Why can't the whole world struggle with him? You ever feel that way? It's like, well, I had to struggle. You know, my... Great-grandfather is going to come up in the millennium. I want him to struggle too. That would be terrible. Why would you say that? But, you know, why is it really necessary? When you really think about it, and that's what we're going to do today, when you actually dive into who the devil is and what he is like and what his nature truly is, you begin to comprehend why, if the millennium is going to work, he must be removed. If the millennium is going to be everything that God has described it as being in the Bible, the devil must be removed. And so that's what I want to discuss today. I want to take a look at the devil in this sermon and what the Bible has to say about him in terms of understanding his nature better. And in doing so, help us to understand why the event symbolized by the Day of Atonement is necessary before the events pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. We need to understand why we must fast before the feast. Uh, and the title of the sermon today is Why the Fast Precedes the Feast. Why the Fast Precedes the Feast. Mr. D. Simone will probably advise me later. The title should have been The Names of Satan, because that will get far more clicks, I think, on, on YouTube. But we could we could discuss that later. That might be good. But my title, sometimes we recognize on the telecast, we've been discussing it. We're so artful with our titles that people have no idea what they're clicking on whenever they click. And sometimes a more blatant title works better. So if you see this one online and it says the names of Satan, you're like, I heard it. It's a different title, but that's the one that I heard. Have you ever done a study on God's names? Some of us have, and it's very enlightening. You know, there are some like, uh, you know, Yahweh or Yahweh, Rafika, depending upon how it's it's pronounced, because there's some question about that. It means the eternal, our healer. Right, there's different names of God in the Bible that He's inspired, and those names tell us some about His character. Well, you actually, and, and by the way, I, have, I think I've talked about it before. Maybe not in Charlotte, I'm not sure, but I don't know if I've ever seen one of those studies where someone actually gets them all. There's usually a few that escape people's escape people's attention. You also learn about the devil in the same way. If you actually take the time to go through Scripture and try to find what He is called in various places. God inspired those descriptions for a reason. And that's what we're going to do over the course of this sermon for the remainder of the time is take a look at various ones of God's descriptions of Satan the devil and each of them will highlight reasons why it's clear he must be removed. He absolutely needs to be removed if the millennium is going to take place. Most of these will probably seem obvious and if I went into every single one the sermon would be Eight hours long and would have a lot of repetition. And so you might think it's what I deep down want to do. And I do sort of. But I'm not going to. We're going to lump some of these together because they all cover pretty much similar material here and there. For instance, here's a category of titles and names for the devil. One of them is the ruler of this world. Or if you have an old King James, you prefer the prince of this world. Similar, the god of this age. The God of this age, ruler of this world, you find in three places at least in the Bible it 's actually mentioned a few times in the book of John, John twelve and verse thirty one John fourteen and verse thirty, and then John sixteen and verse eleven. The God of this age we 'll turn to that one a little bit later, second Corinthians chapter four and verse four and actually, for the sake of time i 'm going to lump in the same place here, two more that may not seem the same, but i 'll explain the connection I think, and that's he 's called the Great Dragon. And the serpent of old, the serpent of old, and both of those names are attached in Revelation 12, chapter 9, calling back, of course, to when he's called the serpent in Genesis in chapter 3. But let's go ahead and turn to Second Corinthians chapter 4. And while we're doing that, I'd actually like to do one more advertisement it's in our blood, uh, right? We want to do that. And that is, if you would like a good brief article, say you get home and it's not sundown yet and, and you're not trying to think, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Rather, you think, I'm, I'm spiritually hungry. That's what it is. I'm spiritually ravenous for spiritual food. Well, let me suggest a spiritual burger for you. And that would be uh, an article that's smaller but covers, frankly, very similar material. It's an article by Dr. Winnale from way back in 2003, 2003, the September-October Living Church News, titled Satan's Devices, How Do uh, Do You Know How the Devil Operates and Why? So I've got a a printout of the sheet, so if you can actually see from that far, you can read it already, at least the first page. Uh, But anyway, it's actually a very good article and talks about the tools the devil uses to snare us and to grab us. So I would encourage you to consider that one if you find yourself at home before sundown and looking for some material to go over. So we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, and we see a very important comment made. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and forgive me, uh, let's start in verse 3. For those of you writing in pen, had to scratch the 4 and put a 3. Verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So the inspired words of scripture refer to the devil as the God of this age. Now, it's not trying to say he's divine in the sense that God the Father and Jesus Christ are divine. But in that sense, that is the one who, in a real way, within God's limits, rules the world, the ruler of this world. The one that is the ultimate object of worship, even when people don't know that's what they're worshiping, that is Satan the devil. John chapter 14 and verse 30. Jesus Christ makes a remarkable statement. As far as I'm concerned, it's really one of the most astonishing statements in the New Testament, from, from my perspective, we can all have our astonished, be astonished in different ways. John 14, verse 30, Jesus Christ tells his disciples with his upcoming crucifixion, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. The corruption that he has actually infused within every fiber of the world around us, none of that is in me, Jesus Christ says, in him, that is. I think that's astonishing, because I know I examined myself, and here at 50 years old, I'm currently working on Wally 5.0. I did a self-examination around Passover and kind of figure out what version am I and what makes a version. Examine yourself your own way, right? I mean, do whatever you're going to do, right? But this is what I did, and I realized I was working on Wally 5.0, but I wasn't it was kind of ironic because I was 50, the way it worked out. But I, I'm not right yet in 5.0. I'm, I'm 5.0 beta. Regrettably, uh, but I'm working on it. Right. And as, as I do examine myself, I recognize I can't I can't say this. I can't say the devil has nothing in me. I still find fingerprints, you know, here and there uh, things about the world, perhaps that I'm attached to that you might think are completely innocent. But then when you do examine them, they're they're not. Uh, it, it's worthwhile examining ourselves for that because Jesus Christ says He has nothing in me. And the world that He will build in the millennium can have nothing of the devil because it will reflect Him. It will not reflect the devil. Uh, the Apostle John talked about that in his letter too. 1 John in chapter 2. In 1 John in chapter 2. What's going to be the result? What should, how should we be mindful of our affections and our desires and our habits and our the things we enjoy or the things we hate even with this in mind we're told of the future to come because of the fact that this world is the devil's world in 1st john chapter 2 and verse 15 starting there The apostle John says and warns all of us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Those things that can be so enticing in the world, and we'll talk about why they're enticing a little bit later They're going away. They're going away. Four times in the New Testament, the devil is called the ruler of the demons. Or the ruler of demons. And in one place it says the ruler of the demons. The ruler of demons. I point this one out just to remind us all that the devil has a kingdom. When Jesus Christ is ruling over the whole world, there will not be competing kingdoms. There will be at first, apparently. The Bible seems to indicate there will be some nations that don't want to submit Quite yet, they will submit people like rain. They like having water when they're thirsty as you know well today. So people will eventually submit. It's almost a given you're going to hear Zechariah 14 read at the beginning of the feast in just a just a few days. But the devil won't submit. The devil is permanently corrupted and his kingdom will not submit. And there will not be two kingdoms in that sense for those thousand years. The devil has a kingdom and he wields power. He commands others. He has a kingdom. He is the ruler of the demons. Uh, To hit some verses real quickly, for instance, we're told in Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. I hope it makes a difference to understand that, that there actually is a kingdom out there a spiritual kingdom if you had a kingdom and you were waging war wouldn't you plan wouldn't you strategize wouldn't you look at the church and think I really think I can pick off those guys I really think I can pick her off if I assign you and I assign you and we head at this particular time because there's this event coming up in their life and I feel like this is the time to go There's organization. There's effort. He's called the ruler of the demons. That implies actual authority and working. You know, it's one thing. I, I freely admit I haven't done this consistently in my life, like I wish I had. But every time I remember it, I try to do it again. And if I were Satan, the devil, I'd be strategic in terms of which ministers I was attacking. I'd look for biggest bang for my buck. You know what I'm saying? And consequently, I need to be praying for those ministers in that regard. I need to hold them up before God, knowing that surely if the devil knows what he's doing and he knows what he's doing better than we know what he's doing, then there's certain ones that surely he has his sights on. And the only thing that prevents him from going all out Job on those men would be the leash and the restraints that Jesus Christ and God the Father have on him. And we should be praying for the fathers of families in our congregations and the special pressures that are on them. We should be praying for the mothers. I've talked to some that you don't think the way of the world gets to them after a while and and makes them feel like they're only just a homemaker and just, you know, feeding children and just washing clothes and all the rest. You know, you can read in the Bible that God praises that work, but the world has its way. And the devil doesn't want our wives to feel like that is some kind of worthy work. So he does have a kingdom. And it infests the politics of our world. I'm not trying to talk about, there's some that want to say, you know, somehow if you are to go to the White House, there's a special room where Mr. Trump probably has a giant painting of the devil, you know, and... Uh, Miley Cyrus on the other side or something. Anyway, you know, all this kind of stuff and that's his demonic worship room somehow and, and that all the leaders are part of some sort of cabal. I find that you don't have to go for crazy conspiracies because the simple stuff explains a whole lot. You don't have to go for more. And the Bible talks about that, pretty frankly. Uh, we won't turn there also for this safe example, but I do hope you'll write these down and look at these passages if you haven't before. Go read Daniel chapter 9 where it talks about, for instance, the prince of Persia. Some people think Prince of Persia is just a video game. It's a video game, but it's inspired by an actual demonic name in the Bible. The Prince of Persia uh, is a demon and talks about princes of different countries. The Bible implies that these beings have influence, you know, over these nations. Ezekiel 28, for instance, and when it talks about the the devil's fall, one of the the passages that does that, refers to the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre and sort of blends together in different places, isolating them in different places, speaking to the human leader of Tyre, but then also the spiritual power behind it all. You know, with the November election coming up, Mr. McNair spoke so well yesterday. Oh, not yesterday, sorry. I I keep the same days you all do. Uh, He actually spoke on the Sabbath about resisting the temptation to get involved politically. Resisting the temptation of letting the devil convince you that his way of political competition is something God wants you to be a part of. And if you, have, if you miss that Sabbath, I strongly encourage you to listen to that. Uh, so I don't know if we'll get it out before the November elections, but it's, it's definitely worth listening to. And let me ask, I hope this clarifies it, because I've been meditating on the sermon since we heard it. Which of the two presidential candidates do you think Satan has no influence on? Thank you for the laughter. I wasn't sure. It wasn't meant to be a joke because it's a literal question. And I say that because there are people out there. You get into all this crazy QAnon kind of conspiracy stuff. And there are people that literally do believe Donald Trump is on a holy war uh, that is going to lead to the kingdom essentially spreading all over the world and he's, and, and there 's this secret angelic uh, there 's all this crazy stuff, and that 's not true. Let me say, just in case you 're curious and you 've been wondering it 's not true. I normally like to couch things and leave a little bit of margin, but i 'm happy to say it 's not true. The devil will do what he's going to do regardless of which of those men are elected. It's God who's in charge that will decide which of those men become the president or which of their vice presidents or the speaker of the house or whatever in the world is about to happen in the next one, two, three, four, fifteen 15 months. He'll decide for his purposes. It's not your call and it's not mine. The politics of this world are infused with various aspects of the devil because he uses his kingdom to impact this one. The devil rules a kingdom and the entire world is under the sway of that kingdom. The millennium will be made possible by the utter removal of that kingdom. There will be no fragment. There will be no trace. There will be no stray demon left alone, who somehow escaped and has found his way behind enemy lines under Jesus Christ. It's just not going to happen. It's going to be hard enough. Think of it, we already know because the Bible describes it, after Jesus Christ returned, there may be kings who still don't want to obey. It's going to be hard enough for them. The fact is, when the devil's gone, do you think that if you still lived, hopefully all of us are glowing and bright and completely perfect and converted, But if you weren't, if you were still just a human being who didn't yet have God's spirit and had not yet been converted and you lived on into the millennium, do you think removing the devil would suddenly you'd be filled with no pride absolutely and just walk around doing nice things all day? We used to say it pretty frequently in the church and it's worth repeating frequently that we have generally three things to resist in this world. Satan, self, and society. The three S's. Satan, self, and society. Society. We're talking today about how God is going to get rid of Satan. He will. For a thousand years, Jesus Christ will ensure that he is bound and unable to influence. Society, we're going to get to help fix. So it's not a source of bad temptation. So it's actually like we used to talk about at camp, the leaning elephant. So it becomes hard in society to do the wrong thing because everybody around you is busy doing the right thing. So we'll fix society. Satan will be removed for a time. But the world's going to be full of lots of little selves and you know what when your brother looks like he has a juicier apple than you have it's still going to be tempting to oh, i was treated unfairly you know or this or that that should be my apple or whatever those things are still going to be there let alone when you're a king of the world and you've had power and you've had responsibility and you've been served by servants and the rest it's going to be hard enough for the people of this world the, the the political nations of this world to yield without the devil's kingdom uh, being removed, but it will be removed. They will no longer have the evil one whispering in their ear. Okay, another title or name given to the devil at least eight times in the New Testament is the wicked one. Depending on your translation, because the word wicked one can also sometimes just be translated wicked or evil. We'll turn to one example in First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. In verse 18. 1 John 5, verse 18, we read there, the Apostle John writes, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. And we do understand that, that we are begotten of God, not born. And often when John is talking about not sinning, he's talking about not practicing sin, not making it an ongoing way of life. Because uh, if you think you... I haven't sinned. See, scanning. Most of you have already sinned today. That is terrible. Why did you do that? No, just kidding. I can't actually scan. But we do still make mistakes. But I want to lead to verse 19. Where John says, We know that we are of God, Under the whole, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under his sway. Believe it or not, the artists that play the music you're listening to on Spotify... Under the Sway of the Wicked One. Oh, no, you're kidding. What am I going to do? You know, yeah, really, Mozart. Definitely Mozart. Under the Sway of the Wicked One. Uh, Beethoven, Under the Sway of the Wicked One. Elton John, shocker, Under the Sway of the Wicked One. Uh, The people that make our movies, Under the Sway of the Wicked One. The people that write our textbooks in college for literally every subject we study. Under the Sway of the Wicked One. So it matters. What does it mean to be wicked? Wicked is one of those great words that regrettably in our day and age has come to mean something something really great. Like, oh, dude, that was wicked. Forgive me. But anyway, it's not that I talk that way. But, oh, man, that was wicked. And we mean that to mean it was great. You see that guy? You know how he was on his bicycle and he did multiple flips in the air and he seemed like his hang time was 37 seconds and the bike was twisting. And, man, that was wicked, man. Let's go to the hospital and tell him how much we loved it before he crashed to the ground and broke two-thirds of the bones in his body. Uh, but yeah, so it's used as a compliment, but it does not it's not meant to be a compliment. It's, it's a synonymous with the idea of evil, uh, something being vile. If you are the wicked one, then you are the vile one. Uh, other basic ideas, then you are the harmful one. Even associated with a disease, if you are the wicked one, then you are the diseased one. At least one place I consulted, they point out that it wasn't just a matter of your character, but in your effect, your effect in the world and your effect on others. And the devil is called the wicked one. And we see that when we see the effects of the devil. The devil perverts all that he touches and corrupts all that he touches. You can think of so many good things that God created. Even good things that we've created. We have used our skills that God has given us and we've made good things. And we find the devil is able to corrupt all of them. You know, think of sports. I don't enjoy sports. I I don't sports. Tyler Wayne used to use this as a verb a lot. Do you sports? Oh, I sports. I don't sports much. I agree. But I do enjoy watching a bit. I appreciated that since uh, my son Benjamin... Was When he was working at Papa John, he used to work the Panther Stadium, the pizza place there, and so really got into sports. So now he knows everybody's names and statistics, just like the rest of you strange people. So anyway, so he really watches, but then we'll just watch YouTube and just watch the highlights. Once I discovered you could do that, football became a lot more interesting. I can just watch the good parts and be done, you know, in time to go do something else. That sounds great. So, you know, so I really have enjoyed that. And I, my family, I... Sort of a heretic, I guess, in my family Because we come from a long line of sports fans Dallas Cowboys, which probably offends many of you But, you know, they used to call it God's team And Tom Landry was the coach And Tom Landry was a classy guy Just just a person of great conviction I remember the first time uh, one of the Dallas Cowboys Later on, after Tom Landry was convicted of uh, cocaine possession and the rest And uh, the first thought was Yeah, well, Tom Landry wouldn't have let that happen You know, that was the first thought Because he was just a really great, upstanding guy but look at sports today. Don't get me wrong. I, it's it's enjoyable. It's it's great to see people use skills in amazing ways. But what a bunch of heathen monsters uh, in many ways, right? What I mean, it's funny how people will root for them like like they have loyalty to them because they live in a city that's attached to their jerseys and colors. But then another city pays them more money and they just go there. There's no loyalty. That's not what they're there for. They're not there because they love you personally. Uh, they're there because they make a lot of good money getting to do what they like to do. It's like if I'd been paid to eat macaroni and cheese the rest of my life. Like, oh, it's not honorable. I'm just eating macaroni and cheese, which I haven't, I've missed. I have not had macaroni and cheese in a long, terribly long time. <laughs> so... It's just they're getting paid to do what they love, and and there's and more and more the values that they may have been accidentally attached to because we like to think of our heroes as virtuous have taken a side uh, room, if you will, to make room for the fact that well what happens is owners learn their players don't have to be virtuous to still earn the money, and sometimes you don't care that the person has a conviction of this and you don't care about this because the player is still earning you money. And there's so much corruption. It goes down to college sports too, and the rest. Uh, look at sports. Sports can be fun. It's wonderful. I, I enjoy. We the, the boys are part of you know as many of you are part of the uh, ultimate frisbee culture here at Charlotte. We have a deep and profound ultimate frisbee culture that many have sacrificed for. Right uh, when else, you know many have sacrificed you know for that. So it's a, it's an important culture. But what if you took the same attitudes in professional sports and brought that into the Charlotte ultimate frisbee culture? It would be awful. I, would, I wouldn't be taking young, impressionable, innocent David uh, to go play. Uh, what, you think my kid's not innocent? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, we wouldn't want it. We wouldn't want it amongst us anymore. We would eject it because the devil corrupts. Being in the world corrupts things. It makes them wicked. You think of education. Uh, it would astonish some of you. Some of you keep up with the news, but there are things you don't always even hear in the news of what they're teaching kids today in many places. Uh, the devil corrupts. Education should be a fountain of knowledge. Learning about the world. Learning how to deal with other people. Learning to do the right thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that in many places. Uh, God created sex. I know that's a shocker uh, perhaps to some. But but he did. God created sex to happen inside a marriage with a husband and a wife. And I, I don't want to encourage you in any way uh, to to dive into this kind of thing. But I know I've talked with and heard from police officers. I used to teach high school and such, and that was even before the Internet, so it's only gotten worse. Um, Officers who have to prosecute, say, certain crimes and the rest, and they have to do investigations because evidence has to be gathered, and they go into the places that are frankly just a few clicks away. And it's, you know, don't worry. I'm not going to talk about any details. But that said, I guess what I'm struggling with is I feel like by by saying I'm not going to talk about any details, you think, oh, wow, that, that really is bad. But here's the thing. I can think of the realm of things that fall into the category of we're not going to talk about the details. And those are just the beginning of the things that are out there. Things that most of us don't even have neurons with the capacity to even consider the possibilities In terms of how sex, something God has created, has been perverted and absolutely made unrecognizable. Achieving the very opposite of the ends it was designed to create and to foster. Satan changes things because he is wicked. He takes the good and makes it bad. Uh, We'll just turn to one verse before we move on with this one. Turn to Titus. Chapter 1 and verse 15. He corrupts everything. Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. You know it's interesting. We do have those that love to criticize the church here and there. Uh, you know, one of the phrases we often use is the people looking for loose bricks, because there's always loose bricks, right? There's always something. I, I work in editorial. That's part of my job. You know, is uh, someone out in Poughkeepsie, you know, reads an article and finds, oh, hey, look, you know, they misspelled this. You know, and calls and says, hey, and it's, it's my job. You know, somebody try to try to clean those kind of things up uh, where a mistake is made or something like that. It's always there. But it's interesting. Because you can tell by the attitude when someone is talking to you about something. Uh, are they talking to you because they have the mindset to the pure, all things are pure? So they assume the best when they call you? They assume that it was a mistake? You know, And it's like, oh, hey, I, I just figured you'd want to know. You know, on such and such, you said, on page 17, you said, Santa Claus is a really great guy. You ought to get to know him better. Oh, I can't, well, what in the world? How did that happen? You know, it's a, someone hackers or whatever. We don't have any literature that says that, just so you know. But from the attitude, when someone calls, you recognize that, yeah, I just want to let you know. Because I I know, like me, you want to fix that. And absolutely, we'll fix it. It's usually misspellings and things like that, but sometimes we get something wrong. Actually, just recently, there was a a YouTube description that referred to uh, the great white throne judgment and referred to it as a second chance. That was a mistake. It's a first chance. In fact, Mr. Armstrong has been attacked in the past for Armstrong's second chance doctrine somehow. But no, it's a first real opportunity. But it was an innocent mistake. It was someone just trying to write and convey how wonderful it is that the people who have died aren't lost forever. They will have an opportunity. And the moment they told us, we went outside and we fixed it. And so the description doesn't say that anymore. And so then the person that notified us was completely assuming, because to the pure, all things are pure, they assume the best. But there are those that always assume the worst. And they would see that. And instead of actually calling up the executive editor or sending him an email or sending it to their pastor even, uh, they got to go on Facebook. And and this didn't happen, as far as I know. Uh, But go on Facebook, next thing you know, it's like, well, now they're saying it's a second chance. What else has changed? You know, next thing you know, you know, it's like all this is... Because to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. And that's what the devil does. He plants seeds of wickedness. He plants seeds of corruption. And it's easier to do than you might think. You think, I would never accept something wicked or corrupt... But he has his way, as we will get to in these other names. And he plants that seed, and it begins corrupting all of your thoughts. Next thing you know, every verse that's given to you, you're interpreting slightly differently because you have this idea. It's the same thing that certain conspiracy theories can do. They change the way you think about everything. Everything. The devil is wicked. He is the wicked one. And wicked, wickedness is a corruption. It's a perversion. And he perverts all he touches. Another name for the devil we are given. And this one is... And let's go ahead and turn there. for will turn there for once instead of just giving it to you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. Talking to individuals here in Ephesus... Paul talking how they've been made live, people have been made live, how they've been dead in their trespasses. Trespasses and sins, which he says in verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, a corrupt world as we've discussed, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And we, we tend to focus on prince of the power of the air and I definitely will focus on that in this point. But I do want to... Grab the entirety of that. The prince of the power of the air, but also the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. I want to make sure I consider that because sometimes you can think of, oh, the devil's working in that person. What does that mean? They're possessed. They're like Judas where the devil has literally entered their body. No, absolutely not. The devil can work in people without necessarily possessing them. He can accomplish his purposes, his disobedient purposes through people that haven't necessarily been possessed by the devil, just by influencing them. And we see it all the time. When I first heard in the church, the prince of the power of the air, and I heard that explained to me, the the metaphor for that, to kind of help understand that, was that of a, a radio signal. And it's difficult because most of us, or many of us at least, don't listen to the radio anymore. Maybe in your car, some of you do. If so, that's cool. With my 8-track, me and the radio, you know, going down the road. Some of you don't know what an 8-track is. You, don't even, you can't even ironically appreciate that I said 8-track because you don't even know what an 8-track is, but I see some of you. I see, you know, you know what 8-track is. So radio would broadcast signals, right? And you would receive it with a big antenna and you could tune into it. But you really had to work to tune into it. And it wasn't digital necessarily. Nowadays you hit a button to find radio stations. Back then you had a knob and you had to really adjust that antenna just right inside the radio. And if you were a little bit off, it'd be staticky. You could sometimes still hear it, but it'd be static. Or if you were out of range and the signal was too weak, it'd be staticky. I've thought about trying to change the analogy to Wi-Fi. It just doesn't work, I don't think. It's, you know, the prince of the power of the air, like Wi-Fi. And I realized, no, then you get like a nice warning, internet connectivity problems, you know, and things like that. It's just, it, nothing beats radio. So I would appreciate it, those of you who haven't experienced radio much, just for the sake of understanding this sermon, after sundown, before you have dinner, go go buy a radio, play with it for an hour or two, you know, to get the idea of what it is. But if you do have a car that still has a radio, and you have the ability to find non-good air time. It's not one of those fancy radios that always finds the stations. Just play with it for a little bit. But I remember my father, when we would go to Kentucky every summer, he he was all the way in Kentucky, but desperate to hear what the Texas Rangers were doing. Because there were no cowboy games at the time. It wasn't the season. So he had to hear how was the game going? How was the Texas Rangers game going? So he had my grandfather's Uh, So we'd be all going to bed at night. But in the window, he'd have my grandfather's radio. And it was one with two dials, for those of you who remember. There was kind of your coarse dialing dial to just really make that needle go across the stations. But then when you're close, but not quite there, there was a fine-tuning dial that would move the needle real slowly because you're trying to get the best reception possible. And even though he's all the way in Kentucky... Still, when it comes to, you understand the way the atmosphere works and stuff, you can get some reflected radio signals and stuff. And he could barely, just barely, and there's some nights he's just working so hard, depending on atmospheric conditions, to get... And there was a home run. He's like, oh, I found it, I found it. But often it was half static, half message. It really was rarely 100%. And those nights when he's only getting 10%, ow, run. Fight. What? What's, what's going on? We're very frustrating for him, but he wouldn't give up because he so wanted to hear the rest of the game. Thinking about my father in Kentucky struggling to hear the Dallas, I mean, the uh, Texas Rangers really has helped me with this idea because sometimes we can think of on Satan's wavelength or not on Satan's wavelength as a binary option, one or zero. It's like we're either tuned into the devil or we're tuned into God, but honestly, sometimes we're struggling around the dial either struggling to get away from the station or sometimes, frankly, struggling to get a little close. And it's caused me to reflect on my own life, and I think of the devil as the prince of the power of the air, just infusing the world around us, even in the ancient first century mind. I don't believe the first century writers were thinking of radio waves. You know, I'll be honest, I don't think that they understood the radio was going to exist one day. But I do think the power of the air still fits because that was the most pervasive medium they understood, right? And that that was the theme, is that he's the prince of the power of the air. He's communicating things through you through it. It's just like breathing in air. It's all around you. You have to work to be able to escape it. And sometimes with the devil, if I examine my own life, I won't examine yours. That's your job. I do find myself sometimes, I think I'm tuned into God's wavelength, And so therefore there should be static because I'm not hearing the devil's broadcast. But if I listen closely, and there was a home run, just real quietly because I haven't truly gotten off the channel. I've hung around just a little bit. There's still a little bit of reception there. You know, if you think about it, the devil doesn't need you to tune in 100%. He just needs to affect you a little bit. Right? Sometimes the devil will take whatever win he gets. Whether it's seven, the full seven points or whether it's six points or whether it's three points or whether it's just a safety, he's happy to get some points on the board. Y'all pick up on that football analogy I just did, some of you? You're welcome. Uh, I hope I got it right. i got to be honest. I'm not sure I got it right. But anyway, he, he just wants to get some points on the board. He just wants a little bit of influence. He doesn't care that you were completely terrible to your wife this morning. If maybe he could just influence you to say that one unkind word. Because he knew that was enough that he could accomplish also what he needed in her for his purposes. Would the millennium be possible if the devil was constantly broadcasting his attitude, his spirit over the airwaves, if you will? It wouldn't. And God's going to remove that station. Jesus Christ will not allow that to be. Okay, another name for the devil is tempter. The tempter. It's used a couple of times. I know it, it, in Matthew chapter 4, for instance, when the devil... So when Jesus Christ is prompted to go out into the wilderness, it talks about how the tempter met him there and the rest. Also, Paul calls the devil the tempter in First Thessalonians 3 and verse 5. The tempter, the one who tempts, the one who's constantly pulling you. You know, when the prince of the power of the air happens to be a tempter, that's a bad combo, right? But one thing, if the prince of the power of the air had nothing but good intentions for you and wanted good things for you and wanted you to live a more godly life, that's a wonderful influence to constantly have. But if he is the tempter, that's different. That means we live in an environment of temptation, evil temptation. And the millennium that would not be possible if that were the case. I tend to think of temptation like gravity. That it's constantly pulling on us and we have to resist. If you don't resist gravity, you win. I'm sorry, you don't win. Gravity wins. Gravity wins. The earth is bigger than you. You will go down unless you're doing something extraordinary to oppose it. Like the reason you're able to see me is because we have uh, a podium here you know uh, that the lectern and I are standing on and it's 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 resisting the earth in that sense the earth wants to pull me down further but if you if you study physics there's an equal and opposite reaction that is keeping me uh, where i am so i don't sink nor do i float uh, it's just all it's all balancing out that's how that's how physics works and it's always pulling and it pulls on every. in fact there's this fun experiment that i saw a physics professor do once It's going to sound morbid, and I apologize, but I assure you, no real monkeys were hurt in this experiment. So he had a a, a long laboratory, uh, where a lecture hall, and at one end he had a a stuffed monkey, not a real monkey. So he had a stuffed monkey, and on the other end he had a gun. It was like a pellet gun, or it might have just been one of those that has like a big sort of projectile with a foam knob. But it was one that would shoot quickly enough, because you have to to make it work. And he said, okay, imagine that the speed of sound is virtually immediate. Otherwise, the experiment doesn't work. And he says, let's say you're the hunter, and for some reason, you're really angry with that monkey. I wish he hadn't picked a monkey. But anyway, you're really angry with that, whatever it is, and for some reason, you've got to shoot that monkey. So he says, now, you know that the moment the sound goes off, sorry, the speed of sound does factor into this. The moment the monkey hears the shot, the monkey's going to let go. He knows he's in danger. So he's going to hear the shot. The monkey's going to let go. And it's still going to take time for your, say it's not a gun, maybe it's an arrow, something like that, your projectile to get to the monkey. So he says, knowing that the moment you fire, the monkey's going to drop. Where should you aim your gun? Because after all, if you're aiming at the monkey, by the time your bullet gets there, the monkey won't be there anymore, right? Right. Well, he he does the math to show you that, yes, you should aim exactly at the monkey. Because if this is the monkey and this is the bullet, gravity works on both of them. And even though the bullet is traveling really fast horizontally, gravity is pulling them at exactly the same rate so that your bullet is falling at the same time as the monkey. Because even though you've put all this power into this lateral motion, gravity is still doing its job. And pulling things downward at the same rate. And I bring that up for a reason. Not because I hate monkeys. But because that's what I think about when it comes to temptation. You can be very busy in your life. I can be very busy in mine. You know, maybe studying my Bible. Maybe reading good books. You know, maybe trying to watch good movies. But I have to recognize, if I'm not actually exerting effort in the opposite direction of temptation. Then I may not be resisting it at all. Sometimes we confuse busyness with righteousness. It's, up front, it's easy to do that at headquarters. Dr. Meredith has warned about it. Mr. Weston has warned about it. Mr. Ames has warned about it. That as you're working hard, you've still got to do all the spiritual things for yourself that you normally should. You've got to be doing your Bible study. You've got to be doing your prayer. You can get so caught up in trying to, 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 to work on the magazine, God's magazine, that you actually haven't uh, kept in touch with God yourself. It's not enough to be doing something. We have to be resisting. If we're not actually resisting temptation, then we'll give in to it no matter what else we happen to be doing. Uh, James chapter 4 gives us encouragement in this regard. James chapter 4. Starting in verse 6, where we're told that, speaking of God... James says in James 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist him and he will flee. But it has to be real resistance. And sometimes it is an immediate. In fact, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but do take a note Hebrews twelve. Where Paul is talking to them and saying, oh, you know, you've resisted, but you haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. That's resistance. Sometimes our resisting is just a bit of temporarily putting off. Hoping that the time we've put it off to, it won't feel as tempting. And God is looking for people to build those muscles in this age. That they'll resist regardless of the timing. That's Bible Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4. When you think of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, think of it as having that force turned off without this supernatural constant temptation for things and what a difference it would make. And think about whether that could happen, a millennium happened with that constant ongoing pull. So far, we haven't covered the obvious names of Satan the devil, which are Satan and devil. Uh, let's do those. Uh, Satan... Satan can be thought of as meaning adversary or opponent or even accuser or slanderer. In fact, it's used in in Hebrew in some places not even to refer to Satan the devil, but to refer to, to just opponents and such. Also, the word devil is very similar. The word devil appears in the New Testament and has the meaning of a false accuser or a slanderer. I noticed I was kind of intrigued. You know, Strong's isn't always great for translation work in terms of getting to the the meaning of some words. It mainly tells you how it's translated and such. But I did notice Strong's had an interesting word for devil, which was traducer. And I'm always interested in words I haven't heard before. Traducer, that the word devil, sorry if I said Satan, I meant devil, that the devil can mean traducer. And I looked that up and essentially it's someone who, who is a betrayer and one who blames, often through misrepresentation. And we're just going to look at one verse for this, and because it's mainly the verse that has perhaps bothered me the most when I say bother" in terms of it's in Revelation 12, in Revelation 12, but the verse that has caused me to reflect myself um, on my own choices, what I do, uh, how to evaluate the choices I've made. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, we have an inspired speaker. Describe the devil. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, John writes, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. The devil is described as the accuser of the brethren. And so there's been times I've had to examine myself and ask myself, you know, I don't think I would ever expect the name Satan to be applied to me or the name devil to be applied to me. But would an accuser of the brethren, would that title ever be applied to me in any choice I've made or anything that I've said, any morsel That I may have been tempted to pass on to someone else. And I remember the first time I had that thought. It was years ago. And the way he's described here. That he accuses them before our God day and night. And I had this thought. And it it was a chilling thought. Not that I could think of a specific example in my life. But just thinking of human nature. And thinking what all of us can be tempted to do. And I thought. While the devil might be in God's court for a time. Kind of like in the book of Job. Like he did with Job. And he's accusing God's people of something, maybe a particular person at that time in God's church. Would I ever want God to look over the devil's shoulder at earth and see me in the middle of doing the same thing? If he ever did, I pray he didn't take a picture of that to show me later because it would just break my heart. And there are those who do not consider that when they accuse Others in the church of God, the pattern in whom they are falling. When someone, whether it's in type on Facebook or whether it's by the lips of their mouth, demonstrate a spirit of accusation when it comes to members of God's church, leaders of God's people, make no mistake where that spirit comes from. Make no mistake where that spirit comes from. You know, a spirit of accusation fills our TV screens. You know, the boys and I uh, watch a lot of uh, YouTube. We'll say, oh, we don't want to sit down and, and watch a, a whole hour-long program. Let's just see what's on YouTube. and we'll watch an hour's worth of five-minute things. Uh, because they get caught up in these history things and stuff. Not all of them are uplifting. None of them are bad. But still, sometimes, sometimes they're silly. But it's actually is some very interesting things that we enjoy watching. But it's been very frustrating recently. Because it seems like, if not every video, every other video is prefaced by a political ad. And so often it's the same ad. I'm thinking, what is, put some cookies on my machine or something so you know that we've already had to endure this one. At least give me a more entertaining, different a political attack ad. The attitude of attacking others is this part of the spirit of this age. It is part of what we see all around us. How, much, how long do you think any kind of peace in the millennium would last if the devil was free to continue broadcasting a spirit of accusation? You know, the people I admire most are, there's times when I know, say, the background of something and I'm talking to, you know, someone who I also is is, is aware of that and I see that there is something that maybe I knew that and they didn't and they had an opportunity to say and they didn't and they held back and they didn't go into it when they could have scored points. When they could have, you know, in a sense, elevated themselves by tearing somebody else down. If you're in the ministry, you see it all the time in terms of counseling and the rest. And I admire that. I respect it. Because I recognize it's the exact spirit God is looking to fill his millennium with. And it's the opposite of the spirit he longs to remove from the world. All right, another one. The devil is called a murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8 and verse 44. A murderer from the beginning. I'll just make two comments about that. If you really think about his first words in Genesis chapter 3 when he starts talking to Eve, what was his goal the whole time? It was to convince her to eat the fruit. And never does he say, hey, uh, why don't you eat that fruit? Uh, He just kind of talks about it a bit, right? Well, wasn't that an attempted murder? Wasn't his goal to make sure she died? What would have been the difference if it was a cup of poison? And he tried to want to convince her to drink that cup of poison. It would have been an attempted murder. Satan's passion is to cause harm. We see that in the book of Job. When the restraints are lifted from the devil, except for Job's life, Job reeks, I mean sorry, the devil wreaks such a level of havoc in the life of Job that it is astonishing. His children dying, his servants dying, his material goods gone. It's caused me to think, what if the restraints were lifted on the devil for all of us? Even just for a moment, what do you think? All those things happen to Job within moments. Within moments. What do you think would happen to us in the room? What do you think the devil wants of us? Is God going to have a spirit like that who has no mercy in him? Just running around the world during the millennium? Every once in a while, I hear someone that somehow feels bad that the devil doesn't have a merciful end of some sort. As if the lake of fire is some kind of expression of mercy. Being burned alive is not an expression of mercy if you're a human being, just so you know. But the devil does not perish. He's of the angels. And some people feel bad about that and somehow think, ah, I don't, that just seems, it seems bad. God's own word testifies that to those who have no mercy, no mercy is shown to them. There is nothing. He will have the very end that he has asked for by his every conscious choice and his every conscious action. He's also described, and it's kind of in the same category, though you could call it a different name, in First Peter chapter five and verse eight, that the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Let's we'll start to Genesis chapter 4 about that because there's an interesting parallel. Genesis chapter 4, and we, we have God talking to Cain, and he sees that Cain is bothered with his brother, that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. And I don't want to get distracted in terms of why that was, but we do know, because the Bible makes it plain, that Cain's attitude was not right. Cain's attitude was not right. And so God talks to Cain. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 6. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament, speaks to Cain. And in verse 6, he counsels him. It says, so the Eternal said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. If you actually go into the, the Hebrew language in this verse, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. It really is the desire of, of like a hungry animal. Like imagining that right outside your door is a predator who wants to kill you and eat you. He's saying sin is right there at your door, like a roaring lion seeking seeing, trying to see if it can devour you. You know, it's so easy for us to think about sin as something we can play with and somehow come out unscathed, especially when we're young. And I'm not saying that because, uh, you know, I know all you young people are bad. I'm sure all of you young people are better than I was. Uh, I, was I was a good kid on the outside. Don't ask about the inside, you know. If you kind of cut me open, look at it and it's like, whoa, what's that in there? Uh, you know, we all have our things. And I know as a, as a young person, certainly growing up in the world all the more, uh, I wish I could blame it all on stupidity. But often you're doing things, you know, that are wrong. And I know it's frustrating, it has to be, because it would be for me if I were uh, young like some of you, where you feel like sometimes whether it's behind the lectern or whether it's your parents or uh, you know, your counselor at camp, uh, who's constantly harping on the same thing over and over you know, and trying to tell you maybe don't do that or why are you doing that or rethink that and it's over and over and over and you're like... oh. Please, dude, I won't say shut up because I'm respectful, but in my head, I can't help but thinking it. I wish you'd stop harping on that. Stop harping on that. I don't do it much. I don't do it very often. It's just here and there, and I'm a good person in the rest. Let me explain some of that motivation, at least some of it, at least for me, is things that seem small when you're young, when you're older, they're not so small. And you, the choice, what you are as an older person who's experiencing the effects of that, And you recognize it's too late to make sure those effects aren't in your life. Because the time would have been back when you were 14 and 15 and 16. It's like an acorn. And you know back when you were 13, 14 and 15 and such and you planted that acorn because it was so small. What difference is it going to make? I planted it right next to the house or whatever. And then you're 50 You've got this vast oak tree that's tearing up your foundation and ruining your house and you're desperately trying to chop it down and it seems like somehow against all odds it keeps getting bigger every year, right? And so you're sweating and all the things you'd like to do you're not getting to do because you're busy chopping down this oak tree at 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. And what you wish you could do was travel through time, find you at 13 or 14 or 15 and slap yourself upside the head. Because it's you. You can you know, do whatever you want. You know, Just slap yourself upside the head and pick up the acorn the guy just dropped. And throw it 100 yards away. And say, so you have no idea what you're doing. You won't even think about this acorn again for another 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And then next thing you know, you have to make a part-time job of chopping it down. And sometimes when adults are obsessing over some little thing in your life, it's because they don't want you stuck chopping an acorn when you could be doing so much more at their age. And it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a challenge. Because that's the way sin is. It starts small. The devil is a roaring lion. He's going to take advantage of you in those times when you think it is small. When you don't recognize how great it is. The last name we'll focus on is that the devil is a liar and the father of it. It's also in John 8, verse 44. The devil is a liar and the father of it. That is the father of lies. And since I'm, I'm out of time, I'll just have to get to the main point real quickly. If you go back to the introduction of the devil in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, I like the old King James description. It says that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The lies that affect us don't have to be blatant. The best ones in terms of the most effective are the subtle ones. Let's turn to our last scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I apologize for for going so long. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Thank you to the TV crew for the editing you will do to make this a more appropriate size. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And, you know, we've read this a lot. Surely, you've been in the church. If you've been in the church for two weeks, you may have already read this verse uh, multiple times. But it, it, it's an important one. And we refer to it on the telecast, I think, with fair, a fair bit of frequency. Speaking of the ministers and the rest of the world, uh, so we'll go ahead and start, actually. I'll start reading in verse 13. Paul talks about these individuals, these false preachers. and says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. If only the devil had a pitchfork and Horn's life would be great. It'd be easy to pick him out. Hey, come over here. I got some candy in my van. "Eh." Sorry, Horn's pitchfork, you're the devil. I'm not, not going over there. But he doesn't. He transforms himself to an angel of light. And sometimes the mistake that we can make in the church is thinking that we are now full bore experts at always picking out when it's real light or the angel of light that's actually not an angel of light. It's the devil. And let me do a little role play. Don't go into this too deeply. But let's say you were trying to conspire to pull someone away from uh, the truth or from a godly living or from God's church Are from a strong relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you. What would you do to go after you? Here's. Just. Just because you're in the room. Let me say what I would not do. I would not try to sell you on Christmas. Now maybe you're weak on Christmas. I have no idea. But if you're here. Most likely you've given that up. I wouldn't. I I wouldn't try. Unless I just felt I'd get away with it. Uh, I wouldn't try to make you a ham sandwich. I have to tell you what it is. To make it work. Right? Otherwise you taste it. Spit it out. Uh. I would say, oh, you know, what a delicious ham sandwich, right? Most of you, you've, you've passed that test. It's great, wonderful. Does that mean the devil's given up on you? Ah, man, I can't get him to eat a ham sandwich anymore. Into the kingdom he goes. I got, I got to lose that one, I guess. Would I try to convince you to keep Sunday instead of Saturday? Most of you have made—I made, can't say most—many of you have made great sacrifices for that very reason. If I were the devil, that's not what I would be working on. If I were the devil, what I might try is to sell you on fighting against abortion in the next election. I might do that. Because if you care about life, you probably care about abortion and hate to see it. I might present you with an opportunity to improve the world in some way, whether it's racism, whether it's unjust economics to try to alleviate some of the suffering through the means of the world, I'd probably tempt you with that. Because if you're a Christian, you care about those things. Seeing people impoverished and homeless hurts. Seeing people judged by the color of their skin hurts. So I'd probably try that. Try to entice you with ideas about faith and righteousness, the calendar, the Bible. Something, anything that might help you feel that you're a little closer to the truth than everybody else. You're a little bit more righteous than everybody else. You're a little bit more faithful or a better Christian than everybody else. Why would I do that? Because I'd want to appear as an angel of light. And if I'm fishing for you, I'm going to use the bait that works on you. Why would I use the bait that works on anybody else? It's easy to see verses like this and think of the world and think, oh yeah, that Protestant preacher I saw on TV the other day talking about going to heaven and preaching the Trinity and the rest. The devil's not using that to appear to you and me as an angel of light. He's using the bait that works with us. Could the millennium ever happen with such a being in the world constantly deceiving and constantly corrupting the truth? Absolutely not. And the father of lies will be removed. I know this day is no fun physically, but it's meant to be a picture of something vitally important. As we all go to the feast after just a few days, as we all go there to celebrate the wonderful things that Jesus Christ is bringing upon the earth, let's all keep in mind that the feast would not be possible unless the fast had taken place first.